join me in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for the gospel, which is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Thank you for the power of your spirit that equips your church to take that good news to the world. So as we focus on the kind of church we should be here in Charlotte Chapel or whatever church we belong to as visitors this morning, challenge us and change us, we pray, so that we might effectively reach our generation with the good news of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. I wonder what features would you associate with the term mega church? Mega church. I suppose first and foremost it would be size. Mega. Size of congregation and along with that the size of the building in which that congregation meets. Uh, The American Harford Institute for Religious Research defines a megachurch as one which has a sustained weekly attendance of 2,000 or more people. By that criterion, there are very few megachurches in the United Kingdom. The largest is Kingsway International Christian Centre in London. Recently in the news following the refusal by the local authority for planning permission for an 8,000-seater stadium for its membership of 10,000. There are many megachurches in the United States. At the last count, 1,200 and increasing. The largest is Lakewood Church, led by the controversial pastor Joel Esteen, which in 2005 took over the Houston Rockets basketball stadium, seating 16,000 people for its membership of 30,000. But the largest megachurches in the world are in South Korea, headed by Yoido Full Gospel Church, with a facility uh, which seats enough people for seven Sunday services, satellite congregations, and a membership at the last count of this church of 873,569. Now, that is mega. Many people today are attracted by mega churches and what they offer. That's why they're mega. More people joining them. And the trend, if you follow church trends in the USA and also in the UK now, is for larger churches to grow larger, sadly at the expense of smaller churches, which grow smaller or close down altogether. The question I want to ask you this morning is, would you like to belong to a mega church? Now, before you all, good Scottish tradition, say, no way. Let me give you a piece of evidence which may influence your decision. And it says, As we continue our series, The Spreading Flame, in the book of Acts, I want to suggest that we find there a description of the first mega church. 
in our verses for this morning in Acts 4, 32 through to 5.16. That will help to have your Bible in front of you as I'm about to prove that the book of Acts describes the early church as the first mega church. It's page 1096. If you don't have a Bible, just reach over and get one because it really will help to follow the evidence. Uh, in this church, we always seek to prove what we say is in accordance with what the Bible says because that's what God has said and we want to interpret it, it rightly. Um, in this section, actually, in chapter 5, verse 11, if you look down there, um, you'll see the first mention in the book of Acts of the word church to describe the gathered group of believers in Jerusalem. However, as we look together this morning, we're going to discover something, and it's this, that the word mega, in this case, in regard to this church, does not primarily relate to its size, although already Luke has told us in chapter 4, verse 4, that there are now 5,000 men alone in the church, and it's growing daily. And the word mega does not refer to the building they met in because they didn't have a building. They met in the temple courts together as a large group and they met in smaller groups in their homes. No, what made this a mega church were three other characteristics which should define every authentic church and make every church, no matter how big its membership, how big its facility, every church should be a megachurch to which every true follower of Jesus wants to belong. So, let me look with you at these three characteristics of a megachurch, and you'll find them here in the text. Here's the first mega or great feature of the church in Jerusalem. You'll find it in chapter 4, verse 33. It was a church with mega power, great power. Uh, the Greek word mega, of course, means great. And in the original it says, with great mega power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the key claim of the Christian faith, upon which it stands or falls, is the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, from the grave. Yes, what precedes it is very important. In fact, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth, says, 1 Corinthians 15, it's of first importance that Christ died for our sins. No one, either at the time who, those who were responsible, or later, seriously doubts that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under the Roman government of Pontius Pilate. Despite what the Koran may claim, him they did not crucify and substituted someone else, the evidence of history within the Bible and from other sources is absolute and compelling. But what is disputed, what is controversial, is what Paul goes on to write about Jesus, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day and that he appeared to numerous people on many occasions. And among those who met with Jesus were these early apostles who Jesus called to be the foundation of his church. Yet, although they were sure that Jesus was raised from the dead, they would need power from on high to testify to this fact in the face of growing opposition 
and hostility. And this is what Jesus promised them, of course, before he ascended into heaven. Our verse for the year is Acts 1.8. Great power promised. Before his ascension, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we saw in our series, on the day of Pentecost, the promise of great power, great power was received. You remember the story when the day of Pentecost came, Acts 2? They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated, came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Great power began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so they went out into the streets of Jerusalem, proclaiming that Christ had risen with remarkable results, great power evidenced. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. And the apostles' word of power was confirmed by signs of power. Acts 2.43, everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. But it was then, following the healing of a crippled man at the Gate Beautiful in Jerusalem, outside the temple, uh, which Luke records, uh, it was then that opposition began to arise. And the people are wondering, who healed this man? How is it possible? We've seen him there. He's been crippled since birth. Here he is, jumping in Jerusalem, as we called it, leaping around and praising God. How did it happen? Maybe these are very powerful men. And Peter explains very clearly, great power attributed. When Peter saw this, he said to them, the crowd, men of Israel, <coughs> why do you... Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we'd made this man walk? No, he tells them, this miracle has been done in the name of the risen Jesus. You killed the author of life, he says to them, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this by faith in the name of Jesus. This man whom you see and know was made strong, it is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given the complete healing to him, as you all can see. And when the religious authorities arrest Peter and John, they've got the same question. How did you do it? And Peter leaves them in no doubt. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we have been called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked, how was he healed? Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Now, not surprisingly, the authorities are threatened and alarmed by the accusation and claim of the apostles. They don't know what to do, since they can't deny it's an outstanding miracle, chapter 4, verse 16. But they are determined, in the next verse, Acts 4, 17, they are determined to stop this thing spreading further among the people. So they call Peter and John in and they warn them not to stop doing miracles, but to stop teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus. So here's another example of great power needed. They called them in again, commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John give a brave response. Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. They cannot help speaking, but they need help to carry on speaking. So they call a prayer meeting together, and their prayer request is for more power. Here's how their prayer concludes. 
Acts 4.29. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And the result, of course, is great power received again. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke the word of God boldly. And so they received great power, as we come to chapter 4 in our verses, for continuing, ongoing, powerful witness. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's where we're at now in Acts 4, verse 33. So, here's the first defining characteristic of a mega church. A mega church is one that proclaims with great power the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, is that true of us? Is that what defines us? Are we a church that powerfully proclaims that Jesus Christ is risen? He's no ordinary religious figure. He's been attested as the Son of God, Lord of all, by his resurrection from the dead. And so Peter proclaims, and we should proclaim with confidence, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now that's a challenge for any church, particularly today. In a world with multi-faith and pluralism, are we prepared to affirm clearly, decisively, with conviction, that Jesus Christ stands above all other people, all other men, women who have ever lived. He is Lord of all. Now, I suggest you don't need to look far, even in our own nation, to see such a claim coming under threat. And the challenge to us is to remain silent, or to downplay the uniqueness of Christ, or to modify the message. All I say to you is, once we go down that path, we will no longer be a mega church. Because the Holy Spirit is given for mega power, for mega witnessing. And when we stop doing that, the Holy Spirit's power is removed. A.W. Tozer, American pastor, preacher, and author, lived in the first half of the 20th century. His books are still accessible, well worth reading. Tozer said this, If the Holy Spirit were withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would notice the difference. If the Holy Spirit were withdrawn from the church in Acts, he goes on to say, 95% of what they did would stop immediately and everyone would notice the difference. So are we a mega church that proclaims the gospel with mega power despite what it may cost? This is at the heart of what we believe. This is what we're equipped for. This is our focus as a church this year. And we can give lip service to it, but is it a reality in our lives, in our personal witness, in our corporate witness? Are we a mega church? That's the first mega feature. Now, the second one follows along as well. There's another dimension of early life in the early church described in these verses. And that relates in these verses to their relationship with each other. Notice the second phrase in verse 33, which is about great grace. Look how verse 33 concludes. With great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much, the translators put much, the same word, mega grace was upon them all. Mega grace was upon them all. Now, grace is a wonderful New Testament word. 
It describes what God has lavished on us, the Apostle Paul says. God has lavished his grace upon us. There are two important words in relation to what God has done for us, which are two sides of the same coin. Mercy and grace are two sides of the same coin. Mercy is not receiving what we, re- what we do deserve. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Illustration. Think of the parable of the prodigal son. When he finally returns from the far country, his father meets him and he shows him mercy and grace. He shows him mercy by not throwing him off the property and giving him what he deserved. But he shows grace by welcoming him back, not as a servant as he expected, but as a much-left son, throwing a celebration for him, reinstating him to full rights in the family. Now, if you are a Christian, you've received God's mercy and you've received God's grace, which has been lavished upon you. Let me just pause and ask you, do you know what it means to be a beneficiary of God's grace? That grace was paid in full by Jesus. When he died on the cross, bearing the punishment we deserve, so we don't have to pay it, and receiving the forgiveness and favour of God, which we did not deserve. So a Christian is someone who has received God's grace. Writing to the Christians in Corinth, many of whom came from the most degenerate lifestyles, the Apostle Paul reminds them of grace received. He says, beautiful verse, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know, he says, you know, you've experienced the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now you can pause at that point and think, that's wonderful. I'm a recipient of God's grace. I've received God's grace. But Paul uses this, has been using this as an argument to say that grace then needs to be demonstrated in our lives. If you've received God's grace, you should share God's grace. So how do you share God's grace? What in generosity? By sharing with fellow Christians in need. So earlier in that chapter, this is what he writes about grace demonstrated. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches, other churches in Greece. Out of their most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. I've been in church life for many years now. I've not come across many Christians who've gone to the treasure and pleaded for the privilege of giving more and sharing with more people. Please, please, can I give some more? Too often we ask, how little can I get away with? But Paul appeals to his Christians in Corinth. He says, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now that attitude was seen in this early church. In Acts, after saying that great grace was upon them, Paul then says it was seen, uh, Luke in writing Acts says, it was seen in extravagant generosity that they showed to one another. Look at verse 34. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Now, it was not enforced. It was spontaneous, prompted by need. Some people think that many of the Christians who came for the celebrations at Pentecost and received the Holy Spirit, 
then stayed in Jerusalem for fellowship and didn't go back home again. And so they had great needs. Uh, there were famines and political unrest at this time in Judea and the surrounding regions. And so great needs arose and great generosity was displayed. So those who had shared freely with those who hadn't. Notice it doesn't say no one had any personal possessions. Of course they did. People still had homes that they met in. Rather that none of them had any private possessions. Verse 32, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. And these gifts were laid at the apostles' feet. A reminder that the wise distribution of resources is a spiritual task for the spiritually mature. So the second thing we want to say about a megachurch is that a megachurch should be a generous giving church. And again, our challenges. It's been so encouraging to see the way that we've given uh, particularly to these particular relief needs at the present time. Uh, some research was done a couple of years ago that showed that on average, Christians give ten times as much to charity as the average person, citizen, who's not a Christian. That's great. We should give generously because we've received generously. But within our fellowship, that should be a characteristic that we share with others who are in need. And if we genuinely receive God's grace then it should be expressed in generous giving to others. So this early church, this first mega church, was characterized by great power in witnessing, great grace in giving. Now you may pause, if we stop there, you might say, that's great, that's the kind of church I want to belong to. That's the kind of church Charlotte Chapel should be. But there is a third characteristic that follows. And it's not one that many churches exhibit. Many Christians want in their church. So let's read on now in Acts chapter 5 what immediately follows after this description. In fact, pick up the reading in verse 36 of chapter 4. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money, put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money to himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? Have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, you must have seen the third facet of a mega church. Mega fear. Great fear. Verse 5. Great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, what provokes such a reaction? 
within the general population and within the church. Well, we discover these two examples of giving. First of all, there's this man called Barnabas, giving to the Lord. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. <clears throat> I would imagine it was kind of some public sort of event. Maybe people just came and brought things forward. And this man Joseph, who was a Levite, normally they didn't own land or property. We don't know exactly where he got it from or what the story was. Uh, but he sold his field and brought the money. And no doubt the whole church saw the amount of money that was given and they were very impressed. He was a very impressive person. Self-effacing, a son of encouragement, an encourager to everyone else. And maybe Ananias and Sapphira saw what was happening and the privilege and uh, sort of the respect that Barnabas got from the church, and, and maybe they thought to themselves, we ought to do something like that as well. But they give with a crucial difference. Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Lord. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge. He kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. However, their action doesn't deceive Peter, who confronts them each in turn with what they've done, and each in turn falls down dead. Now, this is not your most popular verse in the Bible, is it? You know, your verse for life. And there are many people who struggle with this story. I think any, any Christian struggles to say, well, what's this story about? How could, how could such a thing happen? What kind of God is it? I remember being at school, told by my school headmaster, who was a lay preacher, that this is a story that didn't really happen. Or at least with such dire consequences. You know, I think they fainted or something like that. Yeah. Yet, it simply poses the question, why does Luke include it in his account? Let's be honest, if you were writing the story of the book of Acts, would you not have missed this story out? It's always a good question to ask when you read the Bible, which bits as you read it would you prefer weren't there? Because usually they're the challenging bits that make you think seriously about what it means to be a Christian and follow Jesus and what it demands. Uh, some people seek to place the blame on Peter and say, well, Peter was a, a bit bold and impetuous and, you know, he zapped them and he shouldn't really have done it. He should have given them a chance to repent first. But if you read the story carefully, all Peter does is exposes the crime. It's God himself who deals the punishment out to them. And here's the crux of the issue. You see, the problem was not that they didn't give the money. The problem was that they lied about the amount that they'd given. They didn't have to give. Peter said, you didn't have to give it in the first place. And even when you give, gave it, you could have said, we've sold something, you know. Uh, we've sold it. Um, this piece of property, you know. And we got a thousand shekels and we're giving 500 to the church. That's fine. He said, no, we're giving it all. You see... It's God's honour and name that's at stake here. This is a holy church that's indwelt by the Holy Spirit of power, mega power, and mega grace. And in that kind of church, when you trifle with these kind of things, the consequences can be very serious. Keeping back some of the money. It's a challenge, you see, there's already been a challenge from the exterior, from the opposition. But here's a much more subtle and great challenge. It's a challenge from within the church. A challenge to the future integrity of the church. And the Bible speaks today, commentary on Acts, John Stock comments, falsehood ruins fellowship. 
If the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira had not been publicly exposed and punished, the Christian ideal of an open fellowship would not have been preserved, and the modern cry, there are so many hypocrites in the church, would have been heard from the beginning. However, while the punishment may have been exceptional, we don't have any other record of similar things happening in the future. Well, we do in a moment. I'll just mention one. But it's not a generally a thing that generally happened every day in the church. It doesn't lessen the seriousness of sin in God's eyes, and especially the sin of deceit and hypocrisy, of pretending to give and be something that is not true to reality. Another commentator, Robert Longenecker, says, While we may be thankful that judgment upon deceit in the church is not now so swift and drastic, the incident stands as an indelible warning regarding the heinousness in God's sight of deception in spiritual and personal matters. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. His greatest condemnation was on the Pharisees and the religious leaders because of their hypocrisy, their pretended acts of righteousness and giving which didn't fool God. So as Peter was to write in his first letter years later, judgment begins with the people of God. And it means taking discipline seriously within the church, a mega church, an authentic church. If we fail to do so, God may take action himself. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth those those severe words about taking the Lord's table lightly, particularly in relation to other members of the fellowship. And he says that's why Many of you are weak and sick. A number of you have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 11:30. Now there's been a lot of debate about whether Ananias and Sapphira were true believers. The majority opinion, which I believe is right, is that they were, but that God removed them from the fellowship of his people rather than allow his name to be dishonored among his people. Now such a fact should produce in us the same response as the believers in the Jerusalem church. They were seized with fear. And I ask you a serious question, a very serious question. Does that kind of fear of God characterize our lives as a church today? Or are we casual about it? Do we have that awe and reverence before God, which is missing in so many churches and fellowships today? What does it do? It produces a carelessness about sin among its members, a tolerance of what is dishonoring to Christ, and a breakdown in relationships between Christians. Ajit Fernando in the NRV application commentary on Acts writes, Fear is a friend which alerts us to the danger of sin. Fear is a friend which alerts us to the danger of sin. Of sin. So before we say we don't want that kind of thing in our church, think what a salutary effect it had on that church and on that community. So look in conclusion, almost at the end, let's look at the last few verses uh, that we're looking at today in Acts 5, verses 12 to 16, and we're almost there. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. The great power is still there. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more women 
and men believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets, laid them on beds and mats, so that least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Well, let's come back to our original question. Do you want to belong to a mega church? One with great power, great grace, and great fear. The great power is still in evidence. These remarkable miracles that are performed by the apostles. Healings, exorcisms. So you think, did everyone flock to join them? No, some were afraid to join. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. It's not clear who the no one included. Whoever they were, despite respecting the believers, despite seeing what was happening in this dynamic community, they were held back by fear. Sometimes think we make the bar for belonging to our local churches too low. People think, what's the point in belonging? It doesn't make any difference. We set the bar high enough. A godly bar that includes the fear of the Lord. Accountability to one another. Generosity to one another. Maybe this morning you've been held back from belonging to God's people. And I challenge you this morning, do you want to belong to a mega church? Do you want to be part of a mega church? But not everyone responded in that way. For we read on that many were added to the church. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. You always get that division in this kind of church. It acts as, it's so different that people are very divisive about whether they want to join or not. They're just not casual and say, well, I might, I might not, you know. A church, a mega church that's characterized by great power, great grace and great fear will always evoke polarized responses in the community and those around. Some will join. Others will want to join, but they're afraid to join because of the high cost of belonging to God's people. So I conclude by asking you again, do you want to belong to a mega church? You see, you can o- the easy option is to settle for the status quo. A comfortable existence, like a house without power, absolutely no danger of sudden death by electrocution just slow death through hypothermia. That's the choice that each one has to make about the kind of church we want to be, the kind of mega church that we want to belong to. Let's pray together.